Welcome to the podcast, Cocktail Party Economic Conversations, with your hosts, Evie Adamate and Richard Maranta. Well, welcome back to uh, Cocktail Party Economic Conversations. Uh, we're nearing the end of our episodes. We're at Chapter 11, and uh, it's really my great pleasure to introduce our guest, Jamie McKinnon. He is going to be talking about um, environmental economics. Uh, the title of the chapter is, let me just, it's a longer one. It's uh, Getting Enough, a Look at Market Failures. And uh, one of the things that is considered a market failure is if we have what's called uh, externalities. They can be positive, they can be negative. And a negative externality in our world would be pollution, uh, where production happens and no one is uh, taking account of that cost. But we do have mechanisms to internalize the cost, and Jamie knows quite a bit about that. So we're looking forward to talking to him about the area of environmental economics and um, kind of market-based uh, approaches to fixing uh, a negative externality like pollution. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you very much. I'm uh, really glad to be on this. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Hi, Jamie. Um, I'm Rick Maranta. Um, Abby and I were worked together on this book, but uh, she's going to ask all the economic questions. I'm an English major, so it's not really my expertise, but although I learned a lot, <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm just going to ask you some questions about your background. Um, so you're the vice president of environmental solutions at Blue Source. And uh, I guess the environment is one of those topics that have got kind of lost of late, right? Uh, you know, pushed to the background, but um, it's still a concern, um, right? Uh, we have a lot of other things, but um, it's also something that we can't forget about. So. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of get your journey, um, how you sort of got where you're you're at now, and sort of tell us a bit about what your uh, company does and and your role right now, and then maybe go back uh, to like your days at Guelph and just sort of give us the sort of the narrative of your path. Well, I I might if I if I can actually start at Guelph because I sure. think it's, it's really how how this journey started for me. I studied management economics from uh, 96 uh, to 2000. And I was in a lot of uh, first year micro and macroeconomic courses with uh, Professor Adamate. And uh, <laughs> I raised my hand a lot. And, um, you know, it was, it was something that I'm sure anybody studying economics, and I suffered from the same thing, uh, is going to be left with this this doubt uh, when you know Professor Adamate is showing you a marginal cost curve and a marginal benefit curve and the intersection and and this wonderful theory is as interesting it might be you're wondering to yourself well how on earth does this actually apply to real life mm -hmm. and presumably the work that uh, that you'd be doing uh, throughout your career and I, I very much uh, shared those doubts and. In a fourth year environmental economics course, we're, we're going through exactly this theory of uh, pricing pollution and negative externalities and marginal uh, costs of doing so and the marginal benefit of doing so and, and all of the theory. And I, I found that absolutely fascinating and 
how you use market solutions to create effective policy uh, around uh, environmental protection, and, and which was something that I was passionate about. And a year and a half, I, I left, you know, Guelph with those same doubts. Of, okay, well, that was nice. Um, I got a lot out of that, but uh, that was probably very theoretical. Uh, a year and a half later, I was working, developing these marginal abatement cost curves for industry on looking at exactly what it would cost to reduce in different projects and where was the marginal benefit, the price of carbon. And I was I was awestruck that I was actually you know applying uh, these these graphs and this this theory that I had learned and and I, I think that was really the beginning of of uh, the journey for me in terms of a passion to pursue environmental um, action, uh, but do it using markets and market mechanisms that that apply uh, this uh, this this theory, I guess, of arriving at efficient solutions through negotiation. Um, so yeah, that, that was that was really the start of, of my career. And, and I quickly got into uh, climate change uh, solutions. Uh, I managed uh, fairly early on climate change for a large integrated oil and gas company based in Europe, where, where climate policy was really a lot more developed and um, while we were still sort of wondering what to do in Canada uh, and I returned in, in 2012 to, to Canada as, as things were, were really starting to develop here around climate action. Uh, I've, I've managed uh, climate change since for you know, large consumer packaged goods companies and in my current role it's really at the very center of climate action in using these environmental markets that price pollution to undertake greenhouse gas reduction projects, to find them, to be the link between that market and that signal uh, to pay for these emissions reductions in other parts of the economy. And so I, I am very passionate about what I do in terms of contributing to, to climate action and, and you know, gives me a lot of purpose in, in my career. And it's, uh, exceedingly interesting in terms of how how we transition from a more conventional economic model and energy model to this low carbon economy and clean energy economy so, so i thought what you were saying sorry what, what you said was interesting it sounded like that at some point you realized that economics was an actual tool that you could use to change Things. Like a lot of times people are looking, they want to change things in the world, right? But they just don't know what the tool is, right? And I, it's probably relatable to a lot of different things. We just have to find the right mechanism, right? Because sometimes people, oh, what do I do to change the world or for the better? And, you know, we have to sort of find those things. It sounds like for you, uh, economics and markets was something that sort of went, oh, aha, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the beautiful things that I guess for, for economic students and people pursuing careers in, in economics is if this were a regulatory solution to, you know, to solving climate change regulations, mm -hmm. find the reductions at all costs, then this would be a very technical engineering exercise. 
uh, and the fact that what's prevailing in climate action is carbon pricing and markets that allow businesses to make those decisions. There's a major component of this is economic analysis, financial analysis, uh, because it is a market signal that's being brought to bear in these decisions. And it's influencing capital allocation, resource allocation to that. And there's, there's a huge role within organizations uh, for understanding that dynamic and and uh, making those important decisions. Now, one thing you mentioned is that um, it's about pricing, you know, and there's two kinds of way to price. One is a carbon tax where the government prices carbon appropriately. And the other is a, a cap and trade where people buy the right to pollute and it ends up with a positive price. Um, do you favor one or the other? Like, do you have one approach that you like better than the other one? I do. And I, I would say that carbon pricing and just simply attaching a price to the pollution is working in either circumstance. In Canada right now, uh, where we're, we're seeing this play out, we have both cap and trade and carbon taxation. And in both instances, I can see on the ground, it is influencing tens of thousands of decisions uh, by business to allocate resources in, in, a, way, in, in sim a way that simply regulation would not uh, be effective at. But uh, it's very different how a business will allocate those resources and make those decisions in a cap and trade market versus a carbon tax. To give you an example, today we have a carbon levy, a carbon tax at $30 a tonne in Canada, which is the federal level and provincial systems need to, to meet that same standard. Cap and trade markets in Quebec and Nova Scotia are the exemption to that. The price there is $23 a ton today. Hmm. So why is that? There, there are a lot of reasons. I don't want to say it's exclusively about the efficiency of cap and trade versus carbon tax, but there's a major aspect to, uh, if you have an emissions reduction opportunity in a carbon tax regime, the decision by that business is I've got a $30 per ton carbon levy cost, and it's going up to 40 next year and 50 the following year. I will make investments that I believe are going to be less costly than that. And, and that's how businesses are, are mm -hmm. taking in the carbon tax into their decisions. If I'm in Quebec and Nova Scotia, I'm seeing a $23 price and I will undertake the reductions that are needed to achieve the, uh, the overall policy goal uh, and for demand to equal supply. And so I'm going to take those same reductions leading possibly to the same volumes, but at $23 a ton first. And that's the effectiveness of cap and trade. It's going to target, it's going to use the market to target those lowest cost reductions first. And that's hugely important because the lower the cost of reductions in our economy, the more we can do, the more effective we're going to be at solving uh, this climate crisis. Uh, so theory would say that um, uh, at $30 or $40, the higher the price, uh, more reduction will happen. Do you see more reduction happening 
um, in the systems right now that have carbon taxes versus cap and trade, or are they reducing the same amount? Well, the, the system is actually designed to attempt to reduce the same amount uh, because the federal government is determining what is equivalent between these systems for achieving the same type of emissions reduction. So they're supposed to reduce the same amount at the end of the period. They're oh, supposed now, there are differences in, in what each province is supposed to reduce. So, But yes, that is the general policy uh, goal. But at the end of the day, what's more critical than what, it, what they're going to, in, in determining what's going to be reduced, is how effective that price is in leading to that outcome. The carbon tax was set at $20 in 2019 and going up $10 per year. That was very arbitrary. I can tell you that governments do not know what the marginal costs that business face to reduce. They really don't. Mm-hmm. And a lot of businesses don't understand that themselves. Uh, and they're really starting to these days uh, because of carbon pricing. And so they're setting these arbitrary numbers and people have heard in the news and criticism about carbon pricing well, that's not going to achieve the objective. We don't know it will achieve the objective. And in that sense, they're right. We, have, we really don't know in a carbon tax solution because we don't know whether $30 per ton is a price that will get us to meet our Paris Agreement targets. In a cap and trade market, we know. You, you set the limit at that level, and then you let the market determine the price. Now, that's very interesting. Uh, sort of a perspective, because as an economist, we don't really care which one we use, but we're assuming we know the quantity we're aiming for. And and uh, and so it's sometimes that's not so easy to figure out in the real world. Uh, if you set the price at 100, you know, yeah, no, that is really a, a good point that if they set the limit on pollution and just let the price work itself out, then uh, you at least the thing you really care about is the quantity of pollution. You don't care about the price of pollution. You just care that you get the right quantity so that we don't emit as much. Yeah. And and at the end of the day, you know, you might, you might say, okay, well, I'd be very concerned if I set it at this level and let the market determine the price that the price could, could skyrocket and that's going to be an excessive burden on the economy. What we're seeing play out in Canada is the pricing is cheaper. It's less of a burden in the provinces where cap and trade is deployed than it is where the carbon tax is deployed. Well, there's the nugget. Here's the nugget that like you've, this is sort of a interesting idea for a person who's never taken any economics and is reading our book because we talk about both in the book. Um, so, so can you, uh, okay. So if no one's read the book or someone's just reading the book and they don't know the, the, like the nitty gritty of both those concepts, could you give a quick, uh, elevator explanation of cap and trade versus the other one that would be helpful sure. <laughs> sure. for and me. It's so very, very simply a carbon tax you apply to every ton of CO2 that's emitted. Uh, you have to remit a certain amount, in this case, it's $30 today, to the federal government or your provincial government uh, for each ton reduced. And that then internalizes that negative externality. It is priced and businesses who need to, re, who need to pay that are going to pass that cost on to consumers. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're in Ontario, you will have seen a lot of talk about how, okay, you're paying 4.6 cents per uh, liter of gasoline uh, that reflects that cost and it's going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how a carbon tax work. And then they apply to industry uh, an ability to, to meet those obligations without the burden of a carbon tax by, by meeting a, a performance standard, basically. And they do that to alleviate the burden on Canadian industry if their American counterparts are not facing those same costs and their, their competition. The cap and trade program uh, does not set the price. What the policymakers do is they set this is how much can be emitted by large, uh, well, by, by large emitters. They, they certainly, it is usually applied to large industrial emissions. And we will provide permits to emit. And then it's up to the market to decide how any individual company, uh, how much they want to emit. So if I'm a cement company in Ontario, uh, I can emit far more uh, than I have in the past. I'll just have to pay for it. Mm. And I will have to pay somebody down the road to reduce that uh, and, and buy that permit from them because it will have cost them a lot less to reduce than it will have cost me. And so you have a finite, very fixed number of allowances that equals the the emissions that you want to get to. So you're guaranteeing that you achieve that emissions reduction that you want to achieve. So it pushes more of the responsibility on the the businesses to regulate this rather than uh, you know the other the rather than having from outside being enforced on on them, right? Well, both systems would do that, right? Because both, both of them are saying, um, run your business however you want, do whatever you want. But if you're a polluter, uh, either every bit of pollution that you generate, you're going to have to charge price for it. Uh, you're going to get taxed mm-hmm. or you got to buy a permit. Okay. And so you got to pay for the right to pollute. And so some people find that very morally offensive because I've had lots of students get very offended with the idea of saying you're selling the right to pollute as if that's immoral. Um, what do you say to those people? Yeah. I say that it is what's, what's really immoral is complete inaction on solving climate change. Uh, and if we're going to be very purist about this type of issue and say, okay, well, we won't give people the permit, uh, you know, permits, then then we're invariably going to be looking at higher cost solutions to this. Uh, and by looking at higher cost solutions, we're going to get less done. Uh, and that's that's just the nature of of this. Uh, we need our economies to find the lowest cost reductions. We need to focus on that. Uh, if we're going to have the social acceptance of carbon pricing, which is by no means a guarantee in today's world mm-hmm. uh, to undertake this, you have to be conscious of the impact it has on jobs, on Alberta's oil and gas sector. If, if you're not, then you know you could be purist and have a, have a beautiful policy that, that achieves a very high moral standard and it gets scrapped in the next election cycle, which we've also seen. So you really need to base it on, on 
the realities of our political system and what's acceptable to people in terms of the, the burden that's imposed. Yeah, it seems to me that that's a common thing that happens. People are purists, are idealists, and they say, well, it should be like this. And so they want to push for that. But the reality is people, it, does, it doesn't happen like that. People don't you know, implement those solutions, whatever they are across society, right, that you want to implement. It's an interesting thing, just human behavior, right? And so economics sort of deals with that, right? What, what do humans, how do they behave? And it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Jamie. No, I was saying, I think a really interesting picture of this is playing out today in, in Alberta. So earlier this week, Total, a very large oil and gas company announced they're writing down Alberta oil, uh, Alberta oil sands uh, assets for $9.3 billion. Uh, and one of their main explanations was that it's too carbon intensive uh, with uh, achieving our, our Paris Agreement targets. Uh, the, that will not be a competitive asset in the future. And so they're, they're prepared to lose $9.3 billion. And this is one of many companies who has done something similar related to the Alberta oil sands sector. That is... That's a big issue in Canada that's playing out. It, it, it plays on people's jobs and livelihoods. And um, what the, the reason that Total is making that decision is not some altruistic uh, you know, desire to fight climate change. It's to protect shareholder value. And they're doing that because there is a carbon price. And they're seeing that that oil sands production already has a high cost. And when you add yet that negative externality to it, it will not compete with lower carbon intensive oil. And the market is deciding, as, and politics is actually trying to resist that, but the market is pricing that in and it is making those effective decisions. Now, politically, it's really uh, difficult. You say, that's not good for Canada. But what you're not hearing is Alberta is getting a massive investment in renewable energy right now. Why? Because it has one of Canada's only markets for uh, electricity. Uh, it's the most liberalized market for electricity. In that. And in Alberta, the price of carbon represents about 14, uh, going up to 18, 19 dollars per megawatt hour when the price of power is about 55 megawatt hours. And that signal of carbon being built into these clean energy options is leading to massive deployment of capital into renewables in Alberta. That's how that transition is going to work. Uh, it's so cool. Isn't that so cool? I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm an economist. So I think this is so cool. I remember one time I was listening to the CBC and all these coal miners were getting on the radio talking about the loss of their lifestyle being coal miners. And I went, coal mining has cancer like crazy. I do not you know, yes, these people are being deployed out of the mines. A lot of young people went and became miners because it paid well, as opposed to picking another career. And then went and, you know, for labor, it's different because you can deploy capital. I don't know. How long does it take to get, I mean, how long is the capital life of, um, of an oil field? Like how long does it take? To 40 get it? years. 40 years. Right. So it's equivalent to a person, a person's, uh, you know, once you make a decision as a young person, what you're going to do with your life, it gets really hard in your 40s going back to school. 
and, you know, doing a big change. So, you know, investments happen at particular points and markets help those investments be smart as opposed to dumb. And uh, so I think that what, what we're doing is trying to put a price on pollution so that businesses make smart choices that have long-term 40-year consequences. You know, this is going forward, not just, it's not just a moment, which is probably one of the things in economics we're not so good at is we make our market seem instant, but they're yeah. not instant. No, they're, they're not. And I think the, the general feeling is that markets are really being effective at driving behavior uh, towards achieving greenhouse gas reductions and transitioning uh, relative to any other option. Uh, there's a lot of discussion policy-wise about, well, we should regulate, and there's a whole political spectrum that believes in regulations. Um, and it's, it's very politicized, but uh, the pricing mechanisms we're using are working. And I, I, I just see that on the ground. I see capital being deployed that way. I, I work in an area where we're seeing a lot of uh, investment in forests, First Nations deciding to not uh, clear their forests for $5 a cubic meter uh, for their trees, which is a pittance. Uh, it's actually worth more to keep their trees in the ground for the carbon sequestration value than it is to cut them down in, and turn it into toilet paper. Uh, that's amazing uh, because that carbon pricing unlocks all these, these benefits related to our natural ecosystems and the biodiversity and watershed protection. That, that's the beautiful aspect to, uh, uh, to this. And so this is working, but yes, there are a lot of imperfections in how business takes that price signal and deploys it. Uh, there are temporal issues of you know, one really interesting one that, that is how where the rubber hits the road on, on economics of marginal abatement costs and marginal benefit is, yeah, I have a price of $30 today, but if I'm making a decision on a, on a you know, $50 million investment with a 40 year lifespan, what price do I use? Today's price? Uh, those are really hard decisions. And, uh, and then you have a lot of political considerations uh, telling you to, to go a certain way. And so, yeah, it, it is not a perfect system in terms of how that price signal gets touched, but it is, I, I can tell you, it is infinitely more effective than regulations. And we have very good examples of current regulations applied one would be methane regulations uh, relative to markets and how they're tackling. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, here's a message for younger people then, you know, if you really are serious about problems um, and you want to fix them, try to find the market solution. So if you're going to protest, um, you know, ask your government to price it, you know, put prices mm -hmm. on things as opposed to banning things, because banning usually becomes this very political, emotional, you know, like, see if you can just put a marginal price on it that no one kind of notices. Um, I, I do have a story of, of how um, sometimes people wanting to do good, they use one mechanism. So for instance, in England, they used to send their prisoners by ship to Australia, 
right? So these prisoners went across the ocean. About a third of them died en route. And the reason they died is the captain was paid for every prisoner that entered the ship. It didn't matter if they died. People protested, churches protested, laws were made, made no difference. And then one economist came along and said, we will pay you for every prisoner who arrives alive. And the success rate went up to almost everybody lived. And so you could see where pricing, which is very cold and like market, and it just actually gave the socially beneficial outcome of people weren't killed uh, en route because it didn't matter to the sea captain mm -hmm. because of how this person was paid. And so markets are such a significant um, uh, mechanism for social good. And so it's important. So I, so I think your work is really cool. Um, are you working on anything right now that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I, I, I'd say what I'm particularly proud of is we're using these environmental markets to pay First Nations and Métis settlements uh, to preserve their forests in the way that they want to uh, with their traditional uh, use and their traditional knowledge of stewardship of the environment. And so we're giving them, we're valuing another aspect to this forest resource that's not simply timber. And we're, we're enabling them to make more optimal decisions about some level of you know, harvesting timber that sustains jobs and, and, uh, and a need for timber, uh, but a much more sustainable uh, level of harvesting that and ensures the overall health of that forest ecosystem and everything that that ecosystem supports. Uh, it's part of First Nations reconciliation and enabling involvement of First Nations in climate action, uh, in creating own source revenues they can use to support their communities. Uh, and it's, it's the sort of holy grail, if you will, of, of how we can leverage these environmental markets to uh, to create innovative solutions and generate all these co-benefits uh, associated with those. So that, I'm particularly proud of that work that we're doing. Well, we're really proud of you. <laughs> so this is good. Well, I think we're going to bring this conversation to a close. Uh, you know, it went in a way that uh, I didn't expect, which is what's so great about these conversations. Um, Rick, was this way? Like, I didn't expect this conversation to go this way. What are you thinking, Rick? Yeah, no, I, I think it's great because we, we touched on a lot of important things that are in people's minds, right? And I think, I think it's sometimes the uh, economic solution is sort of demonized, right, as being crass or something like that. So for you know ordinary people like me who aren't economists, um, you know, it's sort of puts it all into a new light, just realizing that people are people, they behave in a certain way with self-interest and you got to use that. Like, you know, we, one of the things I I've been working on, you know, uh, a lot on is a, a book about perfectionism. Right. And I think perfectionism has been a problem because people, they're always going for a perfect solution, idealistic solution, but sometimes that ends up working the exact opposite, right? When people politically want their political solution and there's no give, right? Idealism doesn't take into account human frailty, human 
just, you know, right. And so to understand that and use that, I think is really important for people to understand, especially, you know, the economy and uh, money and just realizing people, you know, they're people, they want stuff, they, they want to build up their own world. And there's nothing really wrong with that in a sense, right? We just have to make sure that they do it in the right way. So I just, yeah, I think it's great. This kind of conversation. Awesome. Yeah. So anyway, Jamie, thanks so much. Um, thanks for um, being part of this conversation. Um, yeah. It feels like a comfortable economic conversation. And uh, I'm glad that worked out. And uh, we will uh, be in touch, you know, hopefully in the future, we can do this again sometime, have another conversation, find out where things are at. I know we're still fairly early days in terms of, um, you know, the carbon pricing. Uh, well, it'd be interesting to see what the next 10 years does to the, the market. So anyway, uh, all the best and uh, take care. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it.